climate change issues. I was, I was so surprised when I looked on the website because we found 125 events in one week on climate change that were just related to food, land, or nature-based solutions. So that's three times more events related to those than any other category. So we'll just add this as the 126th event. Um, but I think it's, it's clear that it's, there's an inexorable link between food security, agriculture development, um, climate change, and something that's continued to be more prominent. I'm certainly energized and inspired right now by the movements that we've seen, particularly from young people. I mean, many of you have seen 16-year-old Greta with her strong words at the UN this week. Also, of course, last week there were the protests last Friday, which was uh, arguably the, the largest climate demonstration to date. Um, a few weeks ago, I was moderating the World Food Summit in Copenhagen, where it was uh, 44 countries represented, and I was really surprised that the conversation was all centered around climate change. It was still around food systems and agriculture and diet and nutrition, but the foundation and the start of every conversation was climate change. Also, I'm sure you might have seen um, how this has really risen to the top of our American political discourse. I mean, in the 2016 presidential campaign, climate change was not mentioned, and now you see it as one of the top issues in this campaign. I literally, you know that phrase, jaw drop? <laughs> I literally, my jaw dropped and stuck as I was watching the CNN um, town hall that they had on climate change, which was also historical with the 10 top Democratic um, candidates because people, my jaw was dropping because people were cheering, talking when they heard people talk about cover cropping and no-till agriculture. And I was like, what is happening? And I do feel like this is sort of a moment for those of us that has been in, in this space for a while, we need to see how we can really capitalize on um, how much this has become part of our, our political discussions today. So we're seeing this awareness of climate change, but we're also seeing um, the solutions for this. And it's very clear that we really have to reimagine our global food systems. I, I have to shamelessly give a plug that uh, myself and Christian Mann, and um, I don't know if Chase Sova's in the audience, but the three of us are authoring a policy brief on climate change and food security that will be out in just a few weeks. So pay attention to that because, uh, you know, not only is this important for the health of our climate, I mean, the health of our planet the health of us, but reimagining our food systems is critical as we think about um, how we're gonna mitigate climate change. But it's also critical as we think about those who are gonna be immediately and disproportionately affected um, those that rely on agriculture for their livelihood. And this is certainly the case in Africa. Um, you know, in Africa, 65% of, of the employment there is reliant on agriculture. I used to live in Ethiopia for three years, and there, the now 100 million people population, anywhere from 85 to 90% are, are um, engaged in agriculture for a living. And of course, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of those smallholders are women. So we're seeing, of course, I don't need to tell you, our panels will talk about how climate change is, is already making an impact in Africa. Anytime I travel there, when I talk to smallholder farmers, one of their top issues is not knowing when the rains are gonna come, right? And they're dependent on rain-fed agriculture, and often there's too much or too little rain. So you see the droughts that are happening in Sahel or in East Africa or throughout, really. You see the competition for natural resources in places like Nigeria, where, pa where past Pastoralists and farmers are competing over water sources, and a lot of this goes back to climate change. 
There's also, and we'll talk about this more today, but that link between food insecurity and political instability. And you see this come up, whether it's food riots over price, um, price hikes, or whether it's um, terrorist recruitment. Interestingly enough, um, Executive Director David Beasley of the World Food Program talks about how his program is really the front lines against terrorism, because you see how these groups can lure in young men whenever they're hungry and they need food for their family. So it's really also become this sort of tool, tool of war, really. You know, the stability of America and, and Africa does depend on food insecurity and food stability or political stability. Um, Africa is a huge partner to America, whether you're looking at it from trade or whether you're looking at it from a geopolitical lens. Um, and it's, it's really important that the United States not take a backseat on this, that we continue to be at the forefront of these issues. And of course, one of the, the great policymakers that we have here today is Senator, Senator Bob Casey, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. He's been a great friend of CSIS over the years, and, and I most know him as a champion on food security. If it wasn't for his leadership, we would have the Global Food Security Act that passed or now reauthorized. And so the success of Feed the Future and really the lives of many smallholder farmers are improved because of his efforts. And it's a great reminder of how a policymaker sitting in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, when they take an effort, when they understand it, and when they push it through, what a big difference it can make on a global scale. Senator Casey, we're so glad you're back again. The floor is yours. Well, Kimberly, thanks very much and good morning. And I want to thank CSIS for having me back. You know, in, in Washington, um, we should state over and over again that it's a privilege to work in the Capitol uh, and to work in the, the hearing rooms on a range of issues. But it is good to get off Capitol Hill and come to CSIS and actually learn something. But that leads me to um, an apology because after my remarks, I have to leave because I have a a hearing in the Aging Committee, which was moved from the afternoon until this morning. So I have to run back for that. So I won't be able to hear this, the, the remarks and the commentary and the analysis by a, a, a tremendous panel. So I have to uh, catch up, and I know we can see it later, and I'll have to make sure that I do that. But uh, Vali, who works with us very closely on foreign policy, national security, and on, the, on climate change issues, uh, we'll be here to, to take notes, but I'll have to get, get caught up. Because this is um, an issue which Kimberly outlined just a couple of minutes ago that has captured the attention of the American people uh, in a way that even as she said a few years ago, we probably did not think were, was possible. So I'm grateful to set the stage, and I know some of what I, I'll say, a lot of people in the room already know. The experts here will, will validate and expand, but. I'm just here to set the stage. But it is that kind of an issue. This is uh, the issue of climate change is the most grave challenge that our world faces. Simple as that. It transcends borders and affects every aspect of our lives. It is not too dramatic, nor in any way an exaggeration, that unchecked uh, climate change leads to famine and darkness and death. It's a direct threat to human life itself. We know that now. We're certain of that, and we have to take action. I tend to, to focus on the challenge that the world is presented with uh, just through the lens of children 
children whose health and well-being will be affected by climate change in incomprehensible ways. They must be a major focus of our efforts to combat this threat. So that's why today's discussion is so critical. For too long, we've discussed climate change, food security, and political stability in separate silos. That has to end. And I know some, some of the experts have already, uh, have already been doing this. These experts today in front of us are going to help us better understand these, that these issues are inextricably linked, and they're also going to help us to chart a course forward. What we can do to apply an integrated approach to ensuring that global, the global food supply keeps pace with population growth amidst the continuing trend of climate change in a way that promotes stable, transparent, democratic societies around the world. Just wanted to provide a little bit of background on, on some of my work. My personal interest in this issue stems from my commitment to children, and in particular, uh, child nutrition. I should say the issue of child nutrition. Many of you may not recall, but the late Senator Dick Luger, that we, Senator we just lost recently, invited me to join him way back in 2009 or 2007. I'm forgetting the year. Bali will correct me later. But he invited me to join him in introducing the Global Food Security Act, which would authorize the USAID's Feed the Future program. His commitment, Senator Dick Luger's commitment, to reducing global poverty coupled with his belief that smart investments in agricultural, uh, agriculture itself and small-scale farmers was an inspiration. So for me, that's where it all started with Dick Luger. I hope to do a small credit to his legacy by continuing my work in the United States Senate to advocate for the next generation of agricultural policy. Promoting sustainable agriculture will be uh, pr promoting sustainable agriculture that will be able to keep pace with growing global demand, population growth, and climate change itself. I want to update as well on what eventually happened. Dick Luger and I worked on this. We, did, we weren't able to pass it over a number of years. Ultimately, uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson of the state of Georgia uh, worked with me to get it passed. And as you know, you can't move much in the Senate without bipartisan support. So I want to commend and salute Senator Isaacson. He's been a steadfast partner in passing the Global Food Security Act, which is now empowering USAID to develop a more integrated interagency approach to food security across agricultural value chains and expanding farmers' access to local and international markets through the Feed the Future program. As we look to the hard work of congressional oversight over Feed the Future, I'm pleased that USAID has already begun to bridge the emergency humanitarian programming with its longer-term development efforts to build resilience for communities affected by conflict and climate change. But the United States cannot do this alone. We need to work together on a global scale to not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate economic risk, we also must ensure agricultural and food supply chains can withstand 
climate events. This administration's decision, the Trump administration's decision, to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement was a huge blow to U.S. leadership in climate policy. That's what's known as an understatement. I, along with several of my colleagues in the Congress and throughout the United States government, will continue to fight for policies that bring the United States in line with, this, with its Paris goals. We're doing our part uh, to address this global threat, but we've got to do uh, a lot more. Many, many of you know that one of the domestic efforts that has been undertaken over the last number of years was the Clean Power Plan. The EPA's Clean Power Plan uh, that was, of course, announced and developed in the last administration uh, has been almost utterly destroyed. Uh, we have to make sure that we're doing our part uh, at, a, um, at a, a national level as well as an interna international level. I was recalling, as I was preparing uh, my remarks for this morning, a letter I wrote to the EPA back in November of 2014, seems like a long time ago. And in that report, or in that letter, I should say, I was quoting uh, a report from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and Climate Analytics. And the reason I quoted that, that or quoted a portion of that report was to uh, make it very clear not only to um, Administrator McCarthy, but she probably already knew this, but to a wider audience of the people that I represent, what is the underpinning of our efforts on climate change in a domestic context? And here's what I said, here, here's what the report said that I quoted. Quote, the effects of climate change on agricultural production may exacerbate undernutrition and malnutrition in many regions, already major contributors to child mortality in developing countries. While economic growth is projected to significantly reduce childhood stunting, climate change is, is projected to reverse those gains in a number of regions. Substantial increases due to malnutrition are projected to occur with warming of 2 degrees Celsius to 2.5 degrees, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So I go on from there. That was 2014, quoting a, a report from several years earlier. We are still not taking action that is commensurate with or in alignment with that urgent um, reality. So if anything, that was five years ago. If anything, we're, uh, we're behind. And that leads me to a discussion about agriculture and uh, agriculture itself in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm a member of the Senate uh, Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. And all three of those words are important. The second word doesn't get a lot of attention. The Committee on Agriculture and Nutrition. I'm increasingly concerned about our ability to keep pace with agricultural production as global population grows. The global population is expected to grow by, grow to 10 billion by 2050. And with that demand, uh, for both meat and dairy coming with it. The impacts of climate change on food systems across the globe will be substantial, but perhaps nowhere larger than in sub-Saharan Africa. We know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that 90% of the region's 
cropland is expected to see yields of less, or to see yield losses, I should say, of up to 40%. Let me say that again. 90% of the region's cropland is expected to see yield losses of up to 40%. We face some of the same challenges here at home. We're working to help farmers adapt to these pressures while also being part of the solution through climate-friendly agricultural practices. For millions of people across Africa, Asia, and Latin America, climate change means more frequent and more intense floods, droughts, and storms, accounting each year for up to 90% of all natural disasters. These can quickly spiral into full-blown food and nutrition crises. So while we've made advances in recent decades, we still have high rates, as I referred to earlier, high rates of undernutrition and uh, child stunting around the world, or I should say undernourishment and child stunting around the world. Just some data, some of which you're well familiar with, but it bears repetition. The number of chronically hungry people in the world has increased today to 821 million people, representing one in every nine people on the planet, most of whom, of course, are women and children. Fully one-third of those people live in Africa. Number two, according to UNICEF, one in seven newborns, one in seven newborns, or 20.5 million babies globally, suffered from low birth weight in 2015, and no progress has been made in reducing low birth weight since 2012. People on Capitol Hill should hear those numbers over and over again. Number three, while the number of children under five uh, affected by stunting has decreased by 10% in the past six years, still today, still today, 149 million children, 149 million children are still stunted. This pace is too slow to meet our UN Sustainable Development Goal uh, to have, cut in half stunting by 2030. So we've made progress, and those who have worked on this deserve to be commended for that, but we have a long, long way to go if 149 million children are still stunted. Finally, let me talk about national security implications, which I'm sure will be one of the many reasons why climate change as an urgent issue will have the kind of saliency uh, and I hope sense of urgency in this upcoming presidential and congressional election. Our own intelligence community has linked global food insecurity to instability that can lead to a rise in violent extremism and international crime that can affect the United States. The 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review marked a turning point in how the U.S. grappled with the issue of climate change. For the first time, climate change was cited as a, quote, threat multiplier, unquote, by the Department of Defense, noting that, quote, the impacts of climate change may increase the frequency, scale, and complexity of future missions, unquote, from Syria to Nigeria in the Lake Chad Basin, but also an urban upheaval in Sudan. We see the impacts of environmental stress 
and high food prices on political instability in regions vital to U.S. national security interests. The January 2014 Worldwide Threat Assessment of the U.S. intelligence community reported that, quote, lack of adequate food will be a destabilizing factor in countries important to U.S. national security, unquote. Notice that both the Quadrennial Defense Review, that report was dated 2010. The reference to uh, the Worldwide Threat Assessment is 2014. All of this has been on the record for years, and if anything, it is more urgent today than when those reports were released. So that brings us to political instability itself. According to the U.S. global food security strategy, food insecurity exacerbated by climate change will contribute to, quote, social disruptions and political instability. Projections indicate that more than two-thirds of the world's poor could be living in fragile countries where state-society relations are already strained. By 2030, they will be living in those, uh, those nations. That's what the global food security strategy outlined. When societies break down because governments are unable to provide a resilient infrastructure against climate events, as well as protect local markets from vulnerabilities due to climate change events, trust in institutions erodes and nations are ripe for conflict. If we permit climate change to proceed without aggressive, determined action, investment, and coordination with our partners around the world, we are not, not only allowing millions around the world to suffer extreme hunger resulting from climate-related disasters, we are also allowing conditions for the rise of extremism and the breakdown of democratic institutions to foment unchecked. So we have a major challenge facing our nation. And this is a challenge worthy of a great nation. And it's also worthy of a long, sustained debate. And I'm happy, as Kimberly mentioned, that at least so far it's been the subject of debate and at least one televised uh, town hall just on the topic of climate change. But we've got to do more. Let me conclude with this. Our work on global food security is helping uh, to spur agricultural development and sustainable practices. But there's more to be done. Africa's future food systems will be ever more integrated into uh, global food systems, making it vital that we ensure these markets meet the needs of consumers and producers the world over. We know that food security and resilience to climate change are inextricably, inextricably linked. The global food security strategy, which emerged from the Global Food Security Act itself, makes clear that climate smart ag agriculture must be a central focus of Feed the Future. This is especially relevant in the African context, which receives the majority, in this case, eight out of the 12 uh, Feed the Future investments. And if anything, we need to expand Feed the Future uh, by way of appropriations and policy. So I look forward to hearing some of the policy proposals that are presented by today's experts on this panel. I'll be hearing about it not live, but after the fact. But I appreciate that this expertise is being brought to bear 
on this critically important issue. I'll continue to work on a bipartisan basis to promote policies that clearly link food security and climate change and ultimately help reduce poverty worldwide. Thank you and God bless your work. again to Senator Casey and to my colleague Kimberly for a great uh, opening uh, to this important panel. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program here at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Um, and in a previous life, I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa, so no surprise here, uh, this is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, it was a, a topic of conversation. Many a times, the Senator referenced a number of unclassified intelligence assessments around this issue. Uh, but I'm going to be honest that I have a challenge when we come to this topic, both when I was in government and currently. And it's how to avoid shorthand explanations, how to do this, particularly talking about the linkages between climate change, food security, and instability that isn't oversimplified. I think it's incredibly important that we have this conversation contextualized with what's happening on the ground, whether we're talking about the Sahel or Lake Chad Basin or we're talking about the Horn of Africa. It's so important to me as an analyst for Sub-Saharan Africa to make sure that we're pairing the political, economic, social dynamics in these countries with these bigger trends of climate change and urbanization uh, and food security. It's essential that we tackle this topic uh, with precision and that we craft policy uh, responses that I think respond to very local specific issues. Um, I want to add that we have to think through, of course, the, the consequences of inaction, but also perhaps the unintended consequences of the well-meaning response. And I know today in the panel we'll try to, try to tease that a little bit. Um, I feel really great about this panel because these are really sharp analysts here today. We're not going to get any bumper sticker analysis. I don't think you're going to get oversimplification. Um, the four uh, people to my left have been working on this issue from a policy standpoint, an analysis standpoint, an academic standpoint, um, and I think they're going to be able to leverage today some of the, the, the best in the academic and analytic frameworks to think about this problem set. So, I know you have their bios in front of you, but let me just quickly uh, introduce them. Uh, immediately to my left is Colin Hendricks. He is the director of the Xi Chang Kang, uh, Kang Center for International Security and Development and a professor of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and senior research advisor at the center. Oh, did I say that already? You have a very long title. Sorry about that. Uh, I should just add that you're also at the Corbell School that you lead the Environment, Food, and Conflict Lab. Okay. Jo uh, then we have uh, Amaka Anaku, who is the head of the Eurasia Group's Africa practice, where she helps clients understand the interaction of politics, policy, 
and markets across Sub-Saharan Africa. Amaka has on-the-ground experience working across the continent with organizations like AfriCare, the African Development Bank, the International Crisis Group, and the International Rescue, League, uh, Rescue Committee. And then between 2011 and 2015, she practiced law in the International Arbitration Litigation Group with a major global law firm. Next to her is my old colleague, Aaron Sikorsky, who is the Deputy Director of the Strategic Futures Group uh, for the National Intelligence Council. Prior to joining the NIC, Aaron worked a range of political, military, and terrorism issues uh, on the Middle East and East Africa. And finally, Joe Hewitt is uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace's Vice President for Policy, Learning, and Strategy, where he leads efforts to capture learning from the Institute's program activities and apply it for more effective policy engagement and strategy formation. He previously was the Senior Conflict and Peacebuilding Advisor at USAID, and before that, an Associate Director of the Center of International Development and Conflict Management at the University of Maryland. So clearly, uh, we uh, are not lacking for expertise this morning. So Colin, I'm gonna turn to you first to amplify some of the Senator's comments. Uh, particularly, like, what, what has changed here? So I could point to major famines in the Sahel in 1974, 1970s. Like, we can talk about the 1980s famine in Ethiopia. We can talk about food insecurity leading to uh, political instability, the 79 rice riots in Liberia, which led to the overthrow of, of government of Tolbert. So what is the convergence of factors here that makes this conversation today so urgent? That's a great question. I mean, as I was reflecting on the senator's comments, you know, I, I think he actually did a very good job of setting the scene in many ways. Uh, so there are a couple things that I'll amplify there. One of them is uh, that the share of the world's undernourished that lives in Africa, and specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, has increased significantly over the last couple of decades. Now that's the result of a relatively good story about rapid economic growth and, and prosperity uh, in, in mostly in East Asia and South Asia, but it does mean that increasingly, and if we look at population projections, it's likely to be the case moving forward, that the locus of undernourishment is going to be moving increasingly towards the African continent. Um, another issue is just that we have a better uh, both physical understanding of the impacts of climate change so that we are able to better project the impacts that's going to have for future droughts, uh, future heat waves, uh, more episodic and unpredictable uh, rainfall and weather patterns that are likely to have very significant impacts in sub-Saharan Africa in large part because of continued reliance on uh, traditional rain-fed subsistence agricultural practices uh, for a large share of the population there. Uh, two things though that I wanted to mention that I don't think that the Senator touched on are kind of important. Um, one of the things is that we now have a better understanding, I think in the academic side and also on the practitioner side, of what really some of the security challenges associated with climate change look like. That discourse got started in the early 2000s, but that discourse was largely, I would say, work of, of science fiction rather than social science or, or scientific exploration. And we now have much better scientific consensus about both the physical impacts, but then also some statements that indicate that climate change is a very significant risk factor for armed conflict um, and is likely to increase in, in its significance uh, moving forward. Um, I will also say that this is occurring, that we are learning these things at the same time that the uh, intelligence communities and also the academic communities are seeing a decline in, our, in the power of our traditional models to try and anticipate conflict. Um, and so 
one of the real markers for the decline in the predictability of conflict patterns uh, were the events associated with the Arab Spring, which, which took analysts very much by surprise, and at least on the surface were related to an issue that's intimately related to food insecurity, which is food prices and rapid rates of urbanization, and the increasing tension between a lot of our programming, which is designed to address agricultural livelihoods in rural areas, with a future globally, but, but especially rapidly increasing in Africa, that is going to be urban and therefore interconnected into uh, international and global food systems in much more significant ways. And the last piece I'll say, which has become increasingly salient in the last couple of years, is simply that as we are recognizing the growing importance of international markets and global uh, trade in addressing these kind of food security challenges moving forward, we're seeing a, a retrenchment and a move away from the institutions and the trade practices that are going to be crucial to meeting the food needs uh, of the future. So I think it's the confluence of those various factors that are making these the, what is unfortunately seemingly an evergreen in, uh, issue that comes up maybe every 30 to 40 years really back on the agenda. Yeah, thank you, Colin. Uh, I think the connection between some of the, uh, the food riots and the Arab Spring is really helpful. We could also point to uh, Sudan, some other places. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention is how climate change is changing the future of warfare in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you can often sort of look at when is a rainy season about to happen and will we see any major offensives in the Horn of Africa? Uh, and I think it's becoming less predictable uh, for both observers of conflict in sub-Saharan Africa, but actually sub-Saharan African armies or rebel groups to figure out when's the best time to sort of move forward uh, and, and stake your claim. Uh, Aaron, a lot of a talk already about the intelligence community, so uh, I think you're in good company though if the senator is, is citing your work, but maybe you could <laughs> add a little bit to Colin's comments about how the NIC sees uh, what has changed and where we're going on, on this issue. And I, I see you have my favorite uh, well-worn <laughs> copy of the yes. Global Trends piece, uh, but there's a great piece too about, in that, about that Africans actually care about this issue more than Africans and Latin American governments and, and countries care about this issue more than other regions even. Sure, yeah, thanks Judd and, and thanks Cullen um, to kind of build on what was said by the senator. Already, when we look at climate change on the National Intelligence Council as a security issue, we're often looking at how it's exacerbating uh, other problems that already exist and how it interacts with other trends. And I think it's where that interaction where you get some uh, more specificity. Um, Colin talked a little bit already about demographics, urbanization, how climate change is interacting with that. Um, a couple things I wanted to highlight, going back to your question, Judd, about um, what's changed. I think there are a couple of trends we're looking at and you see climate change interacting and you understand why it's becoming more of a security problem both for the United States and, and the continent. And one, one trend is the trend of governing just getting harder, right? For states, uh, there's an increase in the number, complexity, and speed of issues that governments have to deal with. There's also an increase in the number of individuals and groups that can put pressure on governments, both in authoritarian regimes but also in democratic regimes. And so states are having uh, to deal with these interest groups in a way they haven't before. And these groups are expressing dissatisfaction in uh, a lot of these states. You see an increase in internal violent conflict around the world. To, there are more states experiencing this kind of conflict now than any time since the end of the Cold War. And so you add to this volatile mix, this political volatile mix, the issue of climate. And as Judd mentioned, the unpredictability of a lot of the climate issues just exacerbates all of this churn within states and makes it harder for governments, even when they care about it, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America to manage it successfully. 
Uh, and then to your point that these countries care more about it, I think the other trend I would highlight is the rise in geopolitical competition making cooperation uh, on these issues harder. Because though the impacts are being felt most in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places of climate change, they're not the ones emitting the CO2, right? <laughs> they're not the ones that have the power to change that, that side of the equation. So at a time when you actually need cooperation among states to deal with these issues, that's much harder to do because, I mean, this is a story we all know by now, right? The, the post-World War II international order is fraying, multilateralism is harder, cooperation is harder, there's no leadership. So we can talk a lot about the um, adaptation, the building of resilience within states to deal with these issues, but that's only one half of the puzzle. The other part is, is dealing with the CO2, and that's where you need the, the international cooperation, which is, is just increasingly difficult. Well, let's, thanks, Aaron. Let's get uh, a little more granular on, on the impact, and I'm gonna turn to Maka and then Joe. Um, how is it changing political dynamics on the ground, insecurity? How, how are there specific countries that seem more vulnerable to this problem set? What are some of the responses from Africans? And I'll note that uh, the African uh, bloc was supposed to talk yesterday at the climate summit and, and call for a, a, a climate change emergency. So uh, to Aaron's point, uh, I think they're, for, we're seeing Africans try to put their, increase their voice on this issue, which I think is a very positive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Judd, and thank you, uh, everybody, for being here. Uh, so just to, to set the context and really build it off of what Colin and Aaron have already mentioned, um, you know, if you look at climate change pa patterns in sub-Saharan Africa, most of the places that are getting dry are places that are already dry to <laughs> begin with, right? So you look at the Sahel region, which I believe is sort of one of the most vulnerable, um, we're seeing fertility rates at 5.56. Population is growing really, really fast in those areas. Um, and in a lot of those areas, the northern parts of all the countries were already the poorest areas where they had sort of drier areas. And now those areas are getting dry. So what we're seeing is that a lot of people who were, there are a lot of, you know, take one example, one conflict pattern, we're seeing um, cattle herders who uh, mostly are nomadic in, those, in these regions are now, because they're fewer and fewer grazing lands, are moving down to the southern parts and, and running into farmers, um, and that's causing a lot of conflicts, right? So, for example, Nigeria. Nigeria is, um, you know, 200 million people. It's projected to be uh, the third largest country in the world by 2050. Um, since 1975, the cattle stock has doubled in Nigeria, but between 1975 and now, the grazing lands have reduced by 30%, right? So there are more and more people, more and more demand for food and cows, and fewer and fewer arable land and fewer and fewer grazing lands to raise the foods that they need. I mean, so the impact is, is clear and it's obvious and we're seeing a lot more conflict between 2017 and 2018, and the numbers have gone up and down, but with between 17, 2017 and 2018, the incidence of farmer herder clashes in Nigeria more than tripled, right? And there have been, there've been years when it's gone down for different reasons, um, but we're definitely seeing, like, if we continue this pattern, we'll be in, in some big trouble, right? Um, and so, I mean, so this is, and then of course we're seeing, you know, it's not just farmer herder clashes, it's more flooding um, in Lagos and East Africa, 
Um, and this is definitely, it's beginning to Im impact and influence the, the patterns of the politics, right? So in Nigeria specifically, Nigeria already has um, a weak security system, you know, poorly trained, badly paid, bad intelligence um, of services, uh, security services. And so it's, security has always historically been a political tool, right? So like you can always um, criticize, complain about the government's response to security issues, but more and more we're seeing that um, being more baked into the politics. So for example, we heard it from a clashes. The president of Nigeria is, from, is a Fulani from the, the ethnic group that typically herds cattle. Um, and anything, you know, they've tried to do certain things to try to change the patterns, you know, to try to say, for example, um, reserve more grazing land for Fulanese. And then it becomes a political issue of, oh, you're protecting your people, right? And, and then because they're increasing clashes, the opposition starts to use it as a way to mobilize people along ethnic you know, um, line. So, I mean, it's not, these, these are not, not new, but it's, as Erin and Cohen said, exacerbating some of these previously existing conflict patterns. Um, so that's some of what we're seeing yeah. on the ground. And, and I think something that Erin uh, alluded to and that we haven't brought into fully is just the information, the way in which information flows now on the continent. What, what happens in the middle belt of Nigeria can quickly, through WhatsApp and Facebook, get to, to Maduguri, can get down to Lagos, and these issues can have a life of their own, and, and that can get into political mobilization around these issues in a way that it wasn't unheard of before, but I yeah. think the, the velocity uh, mm -hmm. of things going from a insecurity around food or triggered by climate change or sort of amplified by climate change can now become a huge political issue that can be mobilized and sort of spread out into ethnic issues or religious issues. Joe, let me see if you have anything to add on you know, the impact on the ground from where you sit. How is this changing the way uh, the continent is uh, facing conflict? Okay. Uh, great. Thank you, Judd. Uh, and thank you, Kimberly. It, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be part of this conversation. Um, let me start. I'll shamelessly plug something we're doing at USIP, and then I promise I will, I will try to answer that question. Plugs are okay. <laughs> um, USIP is just getting ready to launch an, environment, uh, an environmental peace-building portfolio. Uh, we haven't had one uh, over the past, uh, the recent past, and we think the time is right to uh, try to get into this to better understand it. The premise for our program is that, uh, first, that the consequences of climate change do not directly themselves cause violent conflict. Um, and in this point, I agree completely with everything we've talked about so far. Um, if, if there was to be, if CSIS wanted to do a word cloud for today's panel, the, the biggest word I think in the word cloud would be exacerbate. Um, we, we keep talking correctly, and the senator said it as well, that the consequences of climate change exacerbate the conditions for violent conflict. And we think that's exactly right, although we don't think we exactly understand what the dynamics of that exacerbation look like. So what, what I would say about that, um, sort of at the high level first, is that we think that the consequences of climate change play through the patterns of fragility 
in fragile and conflict-affected states to have their effect on the likelihood of conflict. So to think about what that means, I guess what I would ask you to do is consider a young man in a hypothetical country who um, has just joined a violent extremist group. And this is what his country looks like. His country is affected by severe extreme poverty. There are few opportunities for economic advancement. Um, in his local community, there's a real lack of trust in the police. Um, there's no access to justice systems. In fact, this young man may not even know that there's a justice system where he could bring grievances or any other kind of call to justice. Um, the political space is closed to his particular ethnic group or religious group in some way. Um, he does not feel that local institutions or national institutions are very inclusive. He knows that governing institutions tend to be very corrupt. And then in that context, rainfall has become more irregular, uh, more unpredictable. Um, and that's led to, uh, let's say, huge price spikes in food, which has led to some sporadic rioting, let's say. And in that context, this young man has jo joined an extremist group. What caused that? It's clearly that whole basket of issues are all playing into that. It would be impossible to say that it was the food price spikes necessarily or the irregular rainfall, but it certainly played a role. And so what we want to try to understand from the conflict perspective is what kind of programming would be helpful in reducing that possibility, more men joining violent extremist groups or perhaps you know, mass protests, greater instability. What are the approaches that would help with that? My answer to that would be, and we're going to work on this at USIP to make this a little bit more specific, um, is first to look at that situation as a starting point. That situation that I just described is a situation that prevails probably in 30 or 40 countries around the world that exhibits significant fragility. Fragility refers to a condition where there's a breakdown in the social compact between state and society in ways that there's a lack of effectiveness from governing institutions or a lack of legitimacy. And when you have that kind of fragility, you have a situation that's very open to uh, break into violence whenever that society is presented with all kinds of strains, whether it is the consequences of climate change or other kinds of strains, like a contested election or maybe an economic recession and so forth. So the solution then is to work on the conditions that contribute to fragility and address them. Um, where the state-society relationship is more resilient, you'll have greater capacity to respond to those strains, including the strains caused by climate consequences. So what we want to try to find out is what kinds of programs make state-society relations resilient so that they're more resilient to the consequences of climate change. We think that's the research agenda that we ought to try to uh, invest in. We want to try to invest in field programs that help us test out our hypotheses about what works and what doesn't work about that. We think that's the best starting point for getting a hold of trying to understand how it is that climate change exacerbates the conditions that lead to political instability and violence. 
Joe, that's uh, powerful framing, and I'm really excited about this initiative at USIP. So we'll be we'll be watching closely, and feel free to reach out to. I'll put Kimberly and I on the spot, whatever you need from us. But Colin, you've, you've thought about this issue as well uh, in terms of the response effort, the senators waiting for the feedback from what we're actually supposed to do about it. What are the ways, you know, no pressure, what are the ways that uh, we're supposed to, um, we can address this? And I think that, you know, I veered us into the conflict sort of side of the coin, but I think you have a, a perspective around uh, food chains and how to think about sort of these bigger issues. Yeah, so I'll try and answer that sort of two ways. The first way is I will, I will take my prerogative as an academic first and foremost <laughs> to say that we need to understand better a lot of these kind of contextual factors that Joe was just talking about. I mean, across uh, the Sahel, you see these kind of drivers in terms of physical changes in the environment, but we don't see the same type of, of either uh, farmer-herder conflicts or the escalation of those according to the, to the local political dynamics and the perceptions of local leaders or national leaders playing favorites. And so one of the things we need to understand better are the different types of strategies of rule that particular, uh, that particular regimes are, are, are engaging in to try and manage these kind of conflicts and also to, to either activate or not activate these types of, of identities that may become very polarized. Ethnicity is one of them, but it's not exclusively an identity that can be polarized uh, in said context. So that, that's my kind of my, my academic response. Um, the second part has to do with making these kind of food systems you know, sort of more resilient. Now that, that can be very difficult in these fragile contexts because one of the reasons why food insecurity is so prevalent in these contexts in the first place is legacies of earlier periods of conflict and the dramatic effects that that can have for agricultural livelihoods and agricultural production. As people flee conflict, they abandon their fields. Um, they, um, in many cases, ha cannot sustainably raise livestock and have to engage in large sell-offs or kill-offs because they cannot, they cannot sustain the populations and that therefore that kind of perpetuates a cyclical kind of relationship. Um, I think that there has been good movement um, via Feed the Future and the Global Food Security Act on trying to address these kind of agricultural development issues. Um, but I think that addressing agricultural development or treating the, the links between food insecurity and political instability in Africa is exclusively an issue related to rural development and agricultural development is probably um, only addressing half of the coin and potentially a half of the coin that is not going to be a half moving forward. So if we take seriously this issue of urbanization, then there are kind of two other issues that we need to be working on. One of them is building out um, food, domestic food systems uh, in, in across sub-Saharan Africa in ways that are going to better link regions of agricultural production with these new urban areas in order to meet the shifting locus of these kinds of needs. Uh, and the other one is really to think about how it is that the international trading system and global markets for commodities first are governed, so what are the things that are affecting these kind of rapid price spikes uh, and, and price volatility that can be very difficult uh, for many small-scale producers at the margins of subsistence who are making very consequential decisions about how to invest their, their scarce resources, uh, what, what we can do to try and tame some of the volatility in those kind of markets. And we can get into a very wonky place kind of talking about that, but that's something you can refer to the G20, spend a lot of time thinking about that in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 food price crisis. Some of our more recent trade agreements, including ones that the United States uh, helped to create but then declined to join, like as in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, had done a very good job, I think, of, of moving in the direction 
of trying to make sure that there would be advanced notifications to partner countries about, say, export restrictions that might be put in place, which are a significant source of volatility and price spikes in these kind of markets. Um, and so I think that, that, that increasingly, and I can't give you uh, all of the answers right now, I think that's beyond the wisdom of Solomon and certainly beyond the wisdom of me, but I do think that, that I would encourage us to be thinking about solutions that, that are looking at the global food system and not treating these things as sort of discrete, uh, isolated issues of primarily rural agricultural development. Although having said that, as the population becomes increasingly urbanized, because of the high levels of fertility and the absolute rates of growth, many of which are in the three to four, and in some regions, 5% range, mm -hmm. even if, 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 say, Nigeria becomes 75% urban at some point in the future, there will still be, in an absolute sense, more people living in rural areas and dependent on rural livelihoods in the future than there are currently. And so that challenge will still remain. So moving forward, we'll have to address both sides of that coin. Uh, you've hit like all my buttons, like <laughs> urbanization, uh, I, you know, I think that it's really important to marry both the way we talk about rural and urban and talk about it with a balance and a dynamic that's sort of back and forth. It's a, it's a, it's a corridor, not a cul-de-sac, and the continent is going to be, uh, is already 30% urban, will be, will be 50% urban by 2030. Sorry, it's about 40% urban now, it'll be 50% urban by 2030. And then on strategies of rule, I've said this at a couple of CSI events that I've hosted, but we need to think more about the political economy around these decisions. What are the incentives and disincentives for actors to make uh, smart policy? Uh, and sometimes I think uh, in Washington we have a more of a technocratic approach to all of this. What are the things that we need to do to deal with resiliency, CBE, fragility, you know, name the, the issue and not think about why actors make decisions that they do and then try to address that. So, Super happy with that response, uh, and then uh, you know you made me think also about IGAD. Uh, IGAD is the um, East African Regional Economic Body, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and actually got its start addressing issues of pastoralism uh, and agriculture and the tensions between communities. And I do think you're right that while there are continued problems in Turkana uh, and other places, uh, IGAD has had a really strong record addressing this issue in a way that perhaps ECOWAS hasn't and why we're seeing some problems, although it's not like Nigeria listens to ECOWAS much. <laughs> um, now we're going to move to my favorite question uh, and topic before we turn to you for your excellent questions is, I think first, you know, how can we get this wrong? I mean, that's partly a question of inaction that I think the Senator already eloquently sort of addressed, but good intentions and the unintended consequences. So how do we do uh, what, what Colin is talking about, what I think USIP will eventually you know, pop out with at the other end, and we do it in a smart way, and we think about how something that's so critical to responding to climate change and addressing food insecurity won't lead to other problems down the line. And Amaka and Aaron and their day jobs get paid to think about this all the time, so <laughs> I'm going to turn to them. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I find this topic depressing, right? Um, <laughs> Because, and you know, to be, if you're, you know, being a little crowd, everything comes down to money, right? At least for Africa. It's like you need all the, all the nuances that Joe was talking about, all the fragility. You know, a lot of it has to do with poor infrastructure, poor welfare systems, poor logistics, you know, all of which you need money to address, right? Um, and most of these countries don't have a lot of money, right? Um, and so, I mean, where, 
we think about, and, and then of course, you know, talking about unintended consequences, um, you know, there's a progressing, if you, if the West decarbonizes too fast, right, a lot of the countries that depend on energy commodities for growth mm -hmm. will have even less money, right? So, I mean, it's, to, it, this is, I find it depressing for this reason. Um, I do think that, you know, maybe something that is somewhat encouraging, um, we, so what, you know, what I do is I advise global capital, right? So um, people who have, who are putting money both in equities but also in bond markets around the world about how politics impacts the, um, the markets. And I'm finding that there's more interest in trying to think about how to factor in climate change in their analysis. Because we do a lot, you know, and, you know, we know, the market knows how to think about elections and the risks around that. And potentially how to punish countries that are not dealing with election risk well, right, in terms of higher yields, right? Um, they don't know the, the 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 mechanisms and thinking around adaptation, which is the entire story for Africa, right? Like Africa is more an adaptation story than a mitigation story because it's emitting so little. It's all about who's adapting best, and you know. So the the mechanisms about thinking about how to reward countries that are doing better at adapting at creating more resilient systems is just not there. Um, so, you know, speaking of plugs, we're actually starting a practice um, at Eurasia Group, a climate change practice to do precisely this, to try to help the markets think about, um, you know, because the unit of analysis for change in Africa in a way is the rest of the world, right? It's like, where is the financing going to come from? to finance some of this resiliency, you know, to, to, to finance green growth and stuff. So we're, we're starting to practice in part to help people think about how do we punish and reward countries that are doing better at adapting. Um, but, you know, so I, I think a lot of it, you know, we have to think about it in that way that there needs to be finance flows, not just in the development world, but in the private sector, right, to help build those resilient systems. Yeah, I mean, what if we get it wrong, right? Or what if we don't take action? I'll start with that, because that's an easier question, and there's a very easy answer that I think won't come as a surprise to anybody in this room, but thinking about there are other actors willing to step in, right? If the United States or the West isn't there to step in, China is more than happy to come and interact with these governments, and so we lose, we lose an opportunity for engagement there. But the more interesting question, you know, what, what are the unintended consequences? There are two things I, I could flag and, and think of, and one is to think about the challenge of migration. And migration primarily within states or within you know, regions of sub-Saharan Africa, and how do you create programs and build resilience in states that you're not encouraging, I don't know, more migration or more movement to the cities or movement to certain areas that puts more pressure on those programs you're trying to create to solve the problems. Uh, the other thing is thinking about the actors you're empowering as well with some of these adaptation programs. Who You're, you're kind of picking winners and losers, potentially. And so who are the actors or the, the political parties or the individuals or the leaders, and how might they take advantage of some of these programs or the, this effort to further their own uh, political agendas, which may be creating more uh, 
instability in, in other ways. So just thinking of the interaction of all these, all these different trends. And, and the last thing I'll say, and I don't have a good answer to this, but I, I know why when we're talking about national security and, and security issues, we go to this extremist and terrorist framing of this climate change empowers the terrorists because that's where people end up. But I wonder if that's too simple of a story in some ways, and there are also pressures that climate change and food security issues bring on extremist and terrorist groups in the continent that we need to look at as well, and I just, I, we do it all the time, right, in, in the intelligence community, but I think we need to be cautious of, of that as the, the primary security issue as, as we frame it for folks, because uh, there are other, other issues as well. So. That, was a, that was really helpful. I, I'm just gonna sort of foot stomp that if you think of it, because I also have some issues around the, the extremism, recruitment issue, and food security, and, and climate change, but Al-Shabaab in 2011, 2012, majorly mishandled the famine in Somalia. I mean, they did not respond effectively to it and it reduced their legitimacy mm -hmm. and their area of control. So just as much as I think governments and the global community are struggling with how to address this issue, so are extremist groups. And so mm -hmm. we could also think about not only the, the negative side of climate change in terms of how it uh, advances extremist groups, but actually maybe the positive side in terms of blunting their uh, advancement. Joe, let me see if there's a comment you had on, on any of the last couple questions, and then we'll open it up. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think one thing I would want to highlight is uh, something that Senator Casey said. Um, he said that the, the governments that are going to do uh, best um, with the challenges of the consequences of climate change are the ones in which people have the most trust. Um, and what that means is that there is a political dimension to this challenge. Um, and so the mis one mistake we could make, Judd, that, um, you know, in terms of our approach to this, is to imagine that all of the policy solutions for dealing with this are mostly technical, mm -hmm. divorced from politics, and that would be a mistake. Um, a huge part of this is going to involve getting the politics right in a lot of these places that are most vulnerable to climate change. Um, so where there are problems where, you know, huge uh, marginalized groups exist, they aren't included in political processes where justice systems are broken. All of these are the foundations of trust in government. And where, where those are problems, people opt out of the social compact. So when that happens in the context of serious consequences to climate change, that's where the potential for this exacerbation that we keep talking about to be greatest. So the mistake we, we could make is that we ignore these political dimensions of the problem. Um, we should embrace them and recognize while we do embrace them that it takes a long time to get them right. So uh, the mistake we could make is to ignore the, the politics. Another mistake we can make is to think it's a short-term game. It's a long-term game. Um, and so these commitments to, to buttress these countries to, to prepare them for the challenges of climate change is something that we have to be prepared to commit to for a, a long time. Right, that was an excellent point. So now we're gonna open up to you. You can tell our experts why they're wrong. Uh, you can ask <laughs> questions. Uh, but uh, what we'll do is I'll, we'll do a couple rounds, one question, and then we'll start bundling questions. Please identify yourself, your organization, and please ask a question, which means it ends in a question mark. So uh, why don't we go here first, ma'am. Hi, I'm Emmy Simmons and a CSIS non-resident advisor. Hi. I want to challenge Amaka. 
because she said in Africa the story is all about adaptation. And I'm just not sure that that's true. I think that somehow all of you have mentioned, you know, rapid population growth. Excuse me, that's not sort of an automatic thing. And it's not necessarily true that Nigeria should be the third largest country in the world by 2050. Similarly, people always talk about the Sahel and about Somalia and Sudan, but forget about the sort of contribution to decarbonization that the larger area of Central Africa provides globally mm -hmm. and how that in fact is a positive, can be a positive mover with regard to climate change. So I'm just challenging you a little bit. I don't think it is all about adaptation. How do you think that Africa's leaders could take on both the political challenge and the scientific challenge and the governance challenge that I think Aaron put out there in a more effective way? Well, should we, should we answer the questions? Yeah, we? Okay. yeah, yeah. So I would, I, I, you know, great points you make, but I would push back, I still think, so population growth is still, to me, still about adaptation. Right, and so is so is the the energy, the fact of dependence on energy commodities. Right, so you know if we to address the population growth problem, right, there are different ways. Of course, you could try to control population growth. You could, but it, to me, it's still an adaptation problem. Trying to control it, adapting to it's not like you're not necessarily mitigating in terms of emitting less, right? Um, you're trying, you're having to adapt, diversify your sources of revenues, if, if you're places like Nigeria and Angola, so that you depend less on oil. Um, you're having to figure out how to, I mean, you could, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking adaptation more in the, client set, in the cli climate change language, right? Um, you could try to mitigate, yes, the consequences of high population growth by growing more, which, which obviously is so complicated, you need more better infrastructure, you need to create a competitive economy so that you can grow and provide more jobs. Um, but that's, that's what I mean by when I say it's all about adaptation. It's all about sort of adapting the economies to create less dependent, more competitive economies that can grow and absorb all this new population. Colin, do you have a, you want to add something? Sure, I, I wanted to respond to what you were saying about being kind of part of the, part of the solution, which I think you were getting at, is this, this issue of carbon sequestration in these large forests, right? So markets have done an extraordinary good job of, of commodifying and pricing the contribution, if you want to think about it, of say Nigeria and other oil exporting countries uh, to the creation of the problem in the first place. What they have not done historically very effectively is compensate places like Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo Basin countries, but also obviously very much in the news right now, the burning of the Amazon, compensating these kinds of countries for basically this massive global ecosystem service that they are providing by keeping these, these, these lands untilled and not engaging in the burning and, and land clearing. And so there are mechanisms for this that are internal to current kind of climate negotiations. My, my suspicion is that if we're actually going to get movement on this, the, the order that is going to have to increase in terms of compensation by orders of magnitude moving forward. Um, because otherwise you'll have death by a thousand cuts where a lot of small, individually rational economic decisions ultimately undermine this incredible resource that's being provided to the global community. Okay, let's go out for another question, sir, right here in the front. It'll be super democratic. We'll go one side, one side, back, back, <laughs> front, front. <laughs> 
with Hi there. Foursquare. First of all, thank you to the panel. Great commentary. My name is Max Kelly. I'm an independent consultant. Um, but I previously spent about a decade supporting the interagency via DOD on issues like this. And uh, boy, I wish you had had all of you in the room for many discussions about doctrine and planning. Um, my two questions, succinct ones, I promise. First is that my experience supporting DOD and via then the interagency is the constant tension between short-term priorities, especially around counterterrorism, um, security, stability, just the bare bones uh, shooting and blowing up things versus the longer term stabilization, development, food security. Um, and the immense challenge we have in the interagency of trying to get those two, the short term and long term goals to meet uh, when it comes to actual operations on the ground. So I'd be curious for your thoughts on how to join those two up. And the second is about the role of the private sector in an era of declining investment of, from governments in foreign aid, et cetera. Um, the role of the private sector seems to be growing, uh, and the at least rhetorical commitment to this issue seems to be growing. So, curious for your thoughts. Those are hard questions. Who wants to uh, jump at it? I'll take a crack at short term, long term. Great. Um, I uh, thank you for asking that question. That's it's. it's uh, I find myself thinking a lot about that same thing. So, you, how do you get? short-term objectives to line up with long-term objectives. Um, I, would, I would start with this. I would start with, uh, and forgive me, this is going to sound simplistic, but start with strategy. Um, and in particular, start with what, what is our theory of change in any long-term strategy? What are we trying to change and what, do we, what set of activities do we think will lead to that change? Um, I think, I know that sounds very simplistic, however, the answer to what you do in the short term to add up to the long term begins with a very careful sense of what those theories of change are. So what that ends up looking like operationally is that those who are responsible for more of the long term uh, plans are, are in some way lashed up with the people who are responsible for doing the short term stuff. Um, and in my experience, I don't find that's always the case. The people who are responsible for the, you know, the operational tactical stuff, the stuff that gets done in, over a six-month time horizon, you know, we're never part of the long-term planning. And so the theories of change for those short-term things aren't necessarily in alignment with the long-term things. This is going to be crucial for what I was describing a moment ago about making countries a little bit more resilient to the strains that might cause violence, because it is a long-term game. And it's going to be really important to set strategy that's not only clear about what you're trying to do in the long term, but what you're trying to do in the short term to eventually get there. So I, I think the answer starts with strategy that imagines both the short term and the long term lashed up together. If I can jump in real quickly on the short term, long term, and do my own plug for the Global Trends Project, which we do at the NIC, which is a long term look, right, at the future security landscape 20 years out. And of course, we face the challenge of how do you get policymakers to focus. I think a couple things. One is this lash up that Joe describes to make sure the short term decision makers are part of the conversation as we build this project. And the second piece is to highlight what are the decision points along the way 
right, that gets you to the long-term future you want. And I think that helps then frame the decisions you're making in the short term to kind of think about, okay, what, is, what are the consequences of this decision five and 20 years out? And for better or for worse on climate issues now, it's not really long-term. I mean, people and, and military folks in particular are seeing the short-term, uh, you know, the, the impacts on the ground in their day-to-day. -day. So hopefully that helps um, with that, that long-term viewpoint. I have a quick comment to make on this. So, I mean, really hard question. Mm -hmm. um, that I, you know, maybe nobody will ever really have a really clear answer to. But I want to tell you the, just one concrete example of what Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire are doing. So the long-term problem is, the, sh the short-term problem is that um, you have a lot of your population who are cocoa, cocoa farmers, and it's their livelihood. And they're literally cutting down sometimes forests just to plant some cocoa so they can sell it for money. And for the governments, politically, short term, it's very hard to stop those activities because you want to win an election, maybe in a couple years. And if you go and like, you know, forcibly prevent them from doing these things, they're not going to vote for you because they're going to be hungry and annoyed and pissed off and maybe create insecurity. You know, lots of so many, many problems. Um, so what Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire has have done, what they're doing this year, is that they've come together. So Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire together are about 65% of global cocoa production. And, and so they've come together and they've said, we're going to put a premium price on cocoa. So we're going to put $400 over the market price. And then we're going to focus on, we're going to give that 400 to the farmer and then we're going to focus on encouraging them to improve their yields and improve the the actual cocoa beans so like ghana for example already has premium beans right and improving so that so that it will be worth the premium so so then you create an incentive so now you're creating an incentive you're solving your your short-term problem because these, they're going to get more money, which will make them happy, right? And they can still vote for you. <laughs> and potentially, and you're potentially, hopefully, stopping the incentive of going to cut down more trees to just grow more cocoa. Um, and of course, more, more cocoa, I, ironically, typically would be lower prices because you're, you know, increasing supply. Anyway, so it's an interesting, they're starting, it's going to go into effect this this because they sell cocoa in advance so we'll see how that works but it's an, an interesting example of trying to solve the long-term short-term problem i think we're kind of in an interesting place right now because uh for some of the reasons that both kimberly and aaron said that climate change is in our debate right now we can see the consequences of it so maybe it moves it up as, as less long-term than it was maybe just five years ago. But I also think the way in which our, the US government has reprioritized issues around national security, uh, particularly with the, um, I wouldn't call it the deprioritization, but the elevation of great power competition over, over counterterrorism issues. And you know, it's, it's hard to be in an interagency meeting and someone talks about terrorism. Uh, that kind of trumps all other issues, right? It's hard to sort of push for a long-term issue. But I think now, with the different mix of, 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 of objectives, I think it's much, e it, I suspect it's much easier to bring in long-term because we're not talking about um, the problem set uh, the way we were in the, the last 18 years. So, you know, for, I, it, I think it's gonna be an interesting experiment. It's still gonna be, the onus is gonna be on the long-term thinkers and the policymakers to marry these two communities together more effectively, but I think there's a, a fighting chance to do it better. Okay. Let's do two questions from the back. So, sir, right there, and if there's someone, and ma'am over there. We'll do both of you, we'll collect them and bring them back to the panel. 
Uh, my name is Trey Taylor. I represent two uh, companies, uh, a for-profit company, Verdant Power, which has a showcase project in the tidal waters of the East River in New York City, so urbanization. But it's a project in front of the United Nations for a number of reasons I can expand on. The second is a nonprofit called the Anchor Coalition. And the Anchor Coalition is being supported by the Ocean Foundation and Cornell University and the National Hydropower Association. Um, Anchor Coalition takes the water, food, energy nexus approach to building sustainable communities, which is critical to water management. So my question to all of you is, because everything seems to be sort of government-centric, uh, I'm also serving my 10th year on the advisory committee at the Department of Commerce on renewable energy exportation. So the idea is we'll be exporting hybrid power plants to local communities to support microgrids. Our systems in New York can produce mechanical power for irrigation pumping and clean water in addition to electricity, which are scalable and modular. So here's, here's my question to all of you. The, the, the water energy nexus approach takes a regional integrated resource assessment approach. And we're focusing this based on the United Nations Development Program, focusing us on Zimbabwe, which was once the breadbasket of the African continent before it was turned into a basket case by Mugabe. And so we are working with, with the local community. We're empowering the local committee to make the right decisions about what they do with that power. It's not US going into saying, we have the answer for you. They have the answer. So here's where I'm coming from. And it comes from the un currently the unemployed young women engineers from the University of Botswana who can't get jobs because they're girls in, in, as engineers. So we're educating and training new ways of farming, focusing on Zimbabwe as a showcase project for the Southern African development community. And so here's, here's the issue. Oftentimes we go at solutions with a public-private partnership. And since I represent the private sector and how fast it's not climate change anymore, it's climate crisis, how fast things are moving. Might we rely on entrepreneurs and innovators to take the lead? Might we shift toward a private-public partnership? Because quite frankly, governments cannot lead, but I think the private sector can in securing water and energy that creates jobs and economic security. Great, thank you, sir. Well, why don't we have uh, the woman right here ask her question as well. Thank you, ma'am. So I'm Sandra Hoffman. I'm with the Economic Research Service of the USDA, and I was a co-PI on one of the projects that led to an estimation of the global burden of foodborne disease. And there's been increasing recognition about foodborne disease as part of the food security problem that we're facing. And we also know, certainly, that climate change is going to exacerbate, just in the natural systems, climate change through changes in heat patterns is going to exacerbate our foodborne disease problems. But when you tie in the instability, and I'm actually thinking physical infrastructure instability, changes in water infrastructure, it, it's going to exacerbate that problem. Currently, the burden is, is disproportionately felt by Sub-Saharan Africa. We just did a study on animal source diseases, and um, animal source diseases are in Sub-Saharan Africa are over twice, the burden of, of those are over twice what they are in any other low and middle income country in the world. So I'm just wondering how that's fitting. I'm hearing a bit about stunting and aflatoxin, 
but it's, it's a broader issue than that, and I'm wondering how that's fitting into these conversations. Great. Let me turn to the panel. We had a question about entrepreneurship and then about food board diseases. Uh, Colin, you want to take a, take a shot first? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I think I would, can I respond to the second question? It's up to first? you. Okay, Whatever perfect. you want. Um, so, I, I mean, I, this is not an area of my expertise, but I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of the downscale climate projections, they're now doing that kind of thing on a very specific disease-by-disease -disease basis. That research, obviously, I think began most critically looking at issues like malaria, um, so looking at, at, at diseases that have large human impacts. and. Um, Parallel to what we have seen in, in sort of the, the long arc of development around research and development around agriculture uh, in the developing world, a lot of that in the past, a lot of the great strides that were made in the past were made because it was in the, uh, I, I guess, the in, enlightened self-interest of many of the countries of the developed world to invest significant sums of money in things like the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research. Uh, and other vehicles to, to attempt to address these kind of emerging problems, which at the time were obviously associated more with overall production and yield than they were these kind of emerging issues. I think we need to return, I, I think we need to return to that spirit of broader global civic mindedness in thinking about ways of adequately meeting these kinds of uh, challenges. Because I don't think, I, I mean, I think it, it would be great if we could have an interaction between uh, you know, the people who are engaging in animal husbandry on the ground who are experiencing how exactly these diseases are manifesting and they understand what are the, what, you know, what are the transmission vectors very well and they understand the impacts on their animals. Um, but that needs to be fed into, I think, a really tacked up um, globally oriented architecture around research and development. Um, and again, I'm not an expert on that, but that's, that's my abiding belief that we can address those kind of issues the same way we've, we've addressed issues like yield uh, and, and crop productivity in the past. Others on the panel? My quick comment to the question of whether the private sector should be leading instead of governments. Um, you know, not to sound skeptical, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think that it sounds good on paper, but I've never known, like the private sector is, is all about profits. And a lot of what we need to do in terms of adaptation um, is more of providing a public good. So I think that it's, it's just unlikely that there will be sort of leading in the sense of like, say, say for example, if you, in Nigeria, you need to build infrastructure and create welfare systems and all this stuff to like mitigate some of the impacts of all this stuff. Um, tough for the private sector really to be leading without the government really kind of setting forth a path and putting its money where its mouth is and then having the private sector come in and plug in. Um, so, I mean, I just think that we, ha we have to really more focus on making it in the government's interest to make those kinds of investments, whether it's through you know, the political process, political competition, and things like that. I, since I, I guess I was thinking along the same lines as Amaka, um, so I'm gonna respond to that question as well, and I'll first confess, I was, as you were framing up your question, I was terrified you were gonna ask us how to run all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, I, I think, you can't get around a fundamental deal that private firms always do make, either implicitly or explicitly with government, when they make an investment in a place. And that deal is 
you know, we, the private sector firm, are, are going to be as innovative as we can, as competitive as we can, as productive as we can. We will employ local people and we will contribute to economic prosperity in this region. The government provides something else in return, security, um, health services for a healthy workforce, education for an educated workforce. Um, that's especially important in your case where you're relying on entrepreneurial leadership. Um, and so it's, if your question is to what extent can you rely exclusively on the, 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 something that's happening regionally and, and less so on the national government, my, my answer is I'd be cautious about that because I think th at the end of the day, there's still a reliance on government to provide those public goods um, that are crucial for any private sector firm to be successful. So how that deal gets struck in a place like Zimbabwe um, is you know, obviously complicated, but I, I'd be cautious about trying to somehow evade the, the national government because of that necessity of the provision of those public goods. Well, and in some instances, right, the creation of markets before they actually exist. So they can also stimulate kind of aggregate demand. So China, China does not have the, the, the globe's kind of most competitive solar sector uh, because of a natural evolution of the market playing out, right? It has it because mm -hmm. the government engaged in a significant amount of capital channeling to then provide a context in which these private actors mm -hmm. could then compete uh, in a variety of ways to stimulate uh, increases in efficiency and, and lowering of cost to the point where it's now created this l global public good, which is the spillover, which is making this form of energy cost competitive with, with even kind of relatively high-tech coal power coal-fired power plants. And so that's, that's another area in which government, and obviously it's operating on a different scale and in a different context, and maybe the case that you can have regional organizations pooling capital to help kind of create these kind of um, create this kind of market demand where otherwise market fundamentals might not suggest it would exist. Okay, um, Aaron, do you have any comments? Great. So we had a lot of plugs. So I'm going to just do everyone a favor and say uh, USIP is starting a fantastic new research project on this topic. We can't wait to see the results of that. Uh, my colleague Kimberly and Christian have got a great report coming out on food security. We should all be looking for that. Can't wait to see what the Eurasia Group is going to be doing on, on this new climate change practice. And we're all waiting pins and needles for 20, late 2020, early 21 for the next version of Global Trends. Colin. Center for Climate Security just <laughs> issued a new uh, climate strategy for America, which is about integrating in a very, very, very robust um, and holistic way assessments of threats and opportunities posed by cl climate change in the U.S. national security strategy and doctrine. That report was released, I believe, yesterday. Um, you can find it on the Center for Climate Security's website. Great. Mm -hmm. Let me thank, again, uh, Senator Casey for joining us today. That was really fantastic to have him here, my colleague Kimberly, and our panelists. Thank you. <laughs>